Hey, it's Jamie Scrimger. When I became a stepmom, I quickly realized that while moms are encouraged to keep it real, there's a big double standard when it comes to stepmoms. So I decided to start the conversation myself. Thriving as a stepmom doesn't just come from conversations about being a stepmom though. Here we dive into marriage, relationships, personal growth, and more. My mission, inspire you to live a kick-ass life while bringing you along as I create my own. This is the Kick-Ass Stepmom Podcast. Hello, hello, Jamie here. Guys, we are talking about sex on today's podcast. Yeah, we have Dr. Jessica O'Reilly back on the show. She's a Toronto-based sexologist, author, and media personality. Yes, she has been on the podcast before, one, maybe two times, and she's also made an appearance in the membership. So if you haven't listened to those interviews, be sure to check them out. We dive into a wide range of questions submitted by you guys on Instagram, I got real with you guys in my stories. I was like, don't be embarrassed. Like submit your questions, no judgment. Like we want this to be a real conversation and you guys delivered. So we talk about sex when the stepkids are around and what to do if you just don't feel comfortable, how to recover when someone has cheated, finding porn on your kid's phone, masturbation, getting past doing something that your partner wants, but that you are just not really into fear around fantasies, communication, and what to do if you can't stop thinking about the ex when you're having sex with your partner. And if you're like, what? Seriously, I've heard that more than once. This is a well-rounded conversation. And I decided to do this at the beginning of the year because I've been thinking a lot about what my resolution is for 2023. And usually I don't say resolutions. I kind of just set some intentions But originally, I didn't think I had any. I didn't think I had any resolutions. I was just going to keep plugging away, doing what I'm doing. And as I've shared on a previous episode, my mantra right now is just, I feel balanced, grounded, abundant, and free. That is my goal. And everything I do really needs to be aligned with that. And that feels really aligned. However, after some more thought, I decided that I want to give some extra love to my relationship with Darren this year. And I'm talking intimacy and connection and just, yeah, Darren. Now, this last year, things have been busier than usual with us, with the business, with the kids and work and projects and life. It's been all good things, but really, really busy. I started going to bed earlier. He stays up late. And at the time of recording this episode, we still have a kid in our bed, which we're working on, but it is hard. And it's just hard to find the time and hard to put in the effort. So I figured that there is no better way to go into the new year with these intentions than to talk about masturbation and deep throating and porn on the podcast with a sex expert. I'm kidding. Well, not really. We do talk about those things. I don't know. I'm rambling. Let's dive in. All right, Jess, are you ready to answer all of the questions from my community? They submitted some good ones. I will do my best. I know that with kids, with young people, there are no right answers because every person is so different. Actually, it applies across all ages, but I will do my best to share insights and experiences and hopefully some tips that people can use to start some meaningful conversations right away. Yeah, for sure. And I think this is such an important conversation, especially like at the beginning of the new year, because, you know, I was just talking about this in my intro. 
I didn't think I had any New Year's resolutions this year. I was like, I'm feeling kind of good. Like, I'm not going to do the New Year's resolution thing. But one thing I really want to focus on is my relationship with my partner. Because, like, it's so easy to get caught up in, like, the hustle and bustle of life. And, like, we have different sleeping schedules. I like to go to bed early. He likes to go to bed late. We have this, like, eight-year-old who seems to find herself in our bed all the time. So, you know, being super deliberate about that relationship and – sex, like sex is really important. So that's my new year's resolution. So this is the perfect conversation to start off the year. I love it. I love it. I think it's a good reminder to reset at the beginning of the year and remind ourselves that it doesn't have to be kind of grand gestures and the big events, but the ways we interact with one another on the daily, like what can you do for a minute a day to make your partner feel important? What Mm -hmm. can you do for five minutes a week to kind of reset the connection? And I always find that January and September are the times that we go back to reminding ourselves that we have to invest in the most important part of our relationship or the most important part of our lives, right? Your relationship determines your quality of life, your overall health, physical health, mental health, all these things are connected. Mm -hmm, For sure. Even this morning, Darren and I were getting ready and I was in my robe there getting ready and he kind of walked behind me and just kind of put his arms around me. And like, we were there for just a couple seconds and we hadn't done that in just a couple of days because I hadn't really seen him. And I was like, we need to do that more often. Like even just like those little moments throughout the day, like that made me want to be more intimate with him later. It made me excited to see him later, right? Like those little touches can go so far. Yeah, you're bringing up something super important too. And that's the fact that we need to touch not only when we want to get sexy. And I think so many relationships fall into this pattern where we are physically disconnected and then we expect it to just come back for the sexual part. So if you only touch your partner when you want sex, what will happen is one partner might start avoiding that touch altogether because it feels like, well, every time you hug me from behind, it's because you want sex as opposed to when you hug me from behind, it just feels good. It's a physical connection. It's an intimate connection. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. All right, so let's dive into some of the questions. Some of them are step parenting related. Some are not. But here is something that's really interesting. And it's going to talk about like the psychological aspect of sex, which I think is obviously so huge. So it's her first time being in a sexual relationship with someone who has kids and we are on the struggle bus sexually. His kids come and go randomly per the whimsical schedule and we are always fully clothed and ready for a kid to walk through the door. It's such a buzzkill. It feels like I have to schedule sex. Well, (laughs) okay. So first and foremost, I'll say that sex is actually always scheduled in a way. Very little sex is actually spontaneous. And I'll contextualize this a bit. When you first meet and, you know, you go on a date and it feels like at the end of the date, you spontaneously tear their clothes off. What we have to remember is we invested that time. We invested the energy. We cleaned up our room. We changed our sheets. We changed our underwear. We groomed. We did all those things to prep for sex. So I think there is this idea that sex is spontaneous in the beginning, and then it becomes less spontaneous. But we have to remember that in the beginning, we were actually prepping for sex. Now, this circumstance is a little different because it sounds like the significant factor that's deterring them from getting to be sexual is the kids. So I would want to have a conversation with the partner about boundaries with the kids and are there boundaries you can set? And I know this is your area of expertise, Mm -hmm. but if I were you, I'd go to the partner and say like, man, I always start with the positive. Like it feels so good when we do ABC or do you remember that time we did XYZ? And then 
say, you know, I want more of that, but man, it's, it's hard. Cause obviously if a kid is busting in on the room, I'm like tense or I'm nervous, or I can't have an orgasm or whatever the specific details are. And then I think you can come up with some strategies that are just relatively practical. Like, can you lock your doors? Mm-hmm. Can you run a white noise machine? Can you let the kids know that they can't bust in on the room? Is there a way to figure out when they're coming and going? And I think this applies in all relationships, whether they're stepkids or they're your biological kids or any type of kid or anyone living in the house. You know, if you have older parents living in the house, you have to work around it. And I'd beg for just like a little bit of reframing around the buzzkill versus the excitement. Because when you're young, you remember when you were really, really young and you had nowhere to like make out and you had nowhere to have sex and you'd have to sneak around. It would be like at the side of the house or in the car or in the garage or whatever the case would be. We made that fun. And so I think we sort of have to make it fun again, as opposed to seeing it as an obstacle. Having said that, I get it. You want to do it in your bed. That's where it's comfortable. But I do think a conversation, a few practical changes, and then having a little bit of fun with it could be worth the effort. Mm -hmm. That made me laugh. Like, yeah, remember when you're a teenager and you're like laying on the couch with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or whatever, and like your parent comes downstairs and you're just like laying there as if you're just watching the movie and like weren't like totally (laughs) screwing around. Like that was exciting. I always laugh though. If I go downstairs when the teenagers are downstairs, I'm like, I'm coming. (laughs) I'm coming down the stairs. But yeah, I love that like reframing thing because it does get exciting to just be like, oh my gosh. Like when Reese was young, we used to give her cheese. For some reason, just loved cheese. We would like sit her up with a movie and give her like a few pieces of cheese. And that would like give us time to go romp. Uh And it did, it made it a little bit more exciting, right? So it is like changing the way that you're looking at that because, you know, you're in a tough season when there's kids around all the time, like all parents are kind of struggling to try to find that time. Absolutely. And maybe there's an opportunity to get away as well. Often there's a co-parenting situation, right? Where you can Mm -hmm. have time where it's a week off or a weekend off or something like that. And I got to tell you, I haven't seen the data on this, but I am hearing from so many parents who are loving the co-parenting situation because they love their kids or their stepkids and they love spending time with them, but they also love having time away. They love that they can sneak away on a weekend. They love that they can go out for dinner. And they say that had they had, in some cases, this amount of time to themselves as a couple, but also to themselves individually, the way the relationship had unraveled might've been different. Wow. That is so powerful, right? Because you can get so engulfed in like parenting and being there for everything. And like your kids are all you do, but it's true. When you do have that space away, you show up as a better parent. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. So this stepmom has really struggled to get the ex out of her head during sex. Oh, okay. So they have absolutely no sexual interest in each other. So she's talking about her partner and the ex and they're totally moved on, but she's a constant discussion in our family. And I feel like I can't get her out of my head. I feel like they're still in some sort of partnership. I even had a severe panic attack during sex, during our first month of marriage, because I couldn't get his past out of my head. Yeah, that's really tough. So I'm sorry you're going through that first and foremost. I understand that it feels like a third party in the relationship and you're definitely not alone there. I think everybody's sort of gone through that. And it is more intense when they're still involved oftentimes in the children's lives because they may pop in to pick them up. You may see them at drop-off. They may be, as you said, a topic of discussion in the living room, in the kitchen, but hopefully not in the bedroom. So first and foremost, it comes back to boundaries for yourselves to say, you know what, we're going to cut off conversation that involves these topics, whether it be work, whether it be an X, whether it be the kids at X PM, like that's when we're done. 
And if we find ourselves falling back into that territory, we're going to kind of keep one another accountable without being accusatory. So number one, I wonder if there are some boundaries you can set as a couple or as a household in terms of where you talk about her and how you talk about this ex. And then the second piece is probably more in the sexual intimate physical side. Uh, it is not uncommon to deal with intrusive thoughts that affect sexual desire, arousal, pleasure, connection, all of those things. And so intrusive thoughts might have to do with work or stress or kids, or in your case, exes, because it is that sort of third party tie in the relationship. So I wonder if you can work on just a little bit of mindfulness on your own with your body and then with your partner. So we have a wealth of evidence showing that mindfulness helps people to be more in the moment, to experience more pleasure, to overcome sexual dysfunction, and of course, to reduce intrusive thoughts. And so mindfulness might look like simply waking up in the morning and taking six deep breaths so that you can feel more in tune with your body. But then mindfulness with a partner before you get down to the sexy stuff might involve just lying there and having them touch your hand touch your face, touch your arms in a non-sexual way so that you can transition into a new headspace where you're feeling the temperature, the texture, the energy, the movement, the rhythm, all of those things. And again, you're not alone, not only I think as a step parent, but just more generally, most people these days, we have so much data bombarding us. We are engaging with so many different devices, with so many different sources of information that when we get into the bedroom, we're like, oh, I need to be in my body, but we're not practiced at it. So any, and this is like a huge topic, but any practice of mindfulness outside the bedroom and then inside the bedroom, they're going to transfer one to the other. And you might find that the intrusive thoughts start to dissipate. What we'll do sometimes with people who are stressed about a certain issue or a certain topic like you are, is when you get into bed, we'll have you visualize putting that topic in a box, carrying that box outside of the room, locking that box in a closet, and then it will still be there in the morning when you need to get to it. So lots of different approaches to mindfulness. And I'm going to plug, I have a mindful sex course on my site at happiercouples.com. And in this course, we start with breathing, visualization, emotional mindfulness, non-sexual touch techniques. And it's a video where you can watch people actually practicing them in the moment and work yourself through this program. And to me, it can be really life-changing, even if you just invest like five minutes a day or 20 minutes a week. Mm -hmm. I love that. I'm going to check that out. The other thing that pops in my head about that is I think often like stepmoms will ruminate on the ex and it's not just in the bedroom. It's just like this constant fixation or feeling not good enough or feeling like an outsider and all of that. And I find it really helpful to just challenge those thoughts, right? You know, when you're like, I don't matter. Is that true? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, they have a partnership. Is that true? Like challenging the stories that we're telling ourselves. And for me, journaling really helps with that. Ah. So it's like, is the story I'm telling myself here true? Like, what am I actually scared of? Like what fear is unraveling here? Like, why am I being triggered by her so much? And diving into that as well, because there's a lot of just stuff and insecurities that come up. I think just because of the way that stepmoms have been viewed in society, the way that, you know, moms and stepmoms have been pit against each other and like the competition for the man, like just all of that, right? It plays a role. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like you're talking about sort of like your own cognitive behavioral therapy where you're saying, you know what? Yes, I'm having this hot thought that sucks, but there's probably a more realistic thought I can access. And the journaling makes so much sense because when we write it down, mm -hmm. it's like you're dumping it out of your mind and all of a sudden you can see, hey, it's not spiraling because words don't spiral on paper the way they spiral around in your head. So that mind dump can be really helpful. Mm -hmm. I love that. 
Okay. So parents found porn on the teenager's phone. Is this a big deal? How do they deal with this? So it's very common. Most people have access porn in the absence of comprehensive sex education that actually acknowledges and offers options with regard to what pleasure looks, feels, and sounds like. We know that our number one source of information and for learning about sex, unfortunately, is porn. And that is across generations. None of us, most of us, have not seen real live sex in real life. We haven't learned about it the way we learn about other things. And so we turn to this form of entertainment to learn. And yes, that can absolutely be problematic, but the mere presence of porn on someone's phone is not necessarily problematic. I think it's an opportunity to remind ourselves that we need to be talking to young people about porn because the reality is they have access to it at their fingertips and they're curious. And so the sooner the better. If we can be talking to them about, for example, even when they're really little, I always say as soon as they are unsupervised on devices and they're on the internet, it's time to talk about dangers online. Like what's the good stuff? What's the bad stuff? What's the stuff that's for adults? And what's the stuff that's for kids? And we already do this with movies, right? We'll explain, actually, you can't watch that movie because that movie is for adults. And that type of communication, that type of language and that approach, those are all transferable to conversations around sexually explicit material. So if you can talk to young people and say, you know what, sometimes you might see something online that makes you uncomfortable. If you see something that you think is maybe for adults, like naked bodies or people kissing. So I'm talking about when they're younger here. Yeah, come and get me, close the screen and come and get me and we can talk about it. So if we can start at a really young age, we're laying the groundwork. As they get older, what preteens and teens need is literacy, media literacy and porn literacy so that they can understand that A, this is material intended for adults. B, however you feel about it, however you respond to it is okay. So if you're upset by it, that's fine. If you're a little excited by it, that's also normal. If you're drawn to it, fine. However, it is intended for adults. And the most important piece to me is offering the context and reminder that porn is not a form of education. I'm not saying there aren't things that could be learned from it, but it is not designed with education in mind. And much of what happens behind the scenes never makes the cut. And so in real life, that's not what sex looks like for most people in most circumstances. And I'm talking about mainstream porn here, right? Mm -hmm. And so I know it can be really upsetting when we you know, find out that our kids have access porn, especially if maybe you don't feel that porn is a fit, or maybe it doesn't align with your values. But I think it's important to remember that every time you talk to your teen, you are determining whether they will come to you next time, or they will go to a different source for support. And that source might be Google, that source might be a random friend who has very little information or inaccurate information. So if you can go to your teen, if you want to talk to them about it with curiosity and say like, you know, there's this stuff online. It depends on the age of your teen, right? If we're talking about a 13-year-old or a 17-year-old, right? With a 17-year-old, I'd really want to just offer the context that it's not real. Sex is lots of different things. There are other places to learn about sex. Here's what some of them are. And if you have any questions, I'm here for you. Because I mean, with a 17-year-old, you're not going to be like, you're not allowed to watch that until 200 days when you turn 18. <laughs> Probably not realistic. But with a younger teen, you're definitely going to want to ask them, you know, like, are you okay? Are you feeling okay? How are you feeling? Do you have any questions? Is there something that came up in there that maybe you want to learn a bit more about? And here are some alternative resources. So for example, there's a YouTube series called Amaze. And Amaze is sex education for 
younger, like preteens, I believe. So you could check that out together. Mm. Or with a teenager, you could share information from, you know, Planned Parenthood. There are all these different really great resources online, blogs that they can read where they're going to learn about sex in a more holistic and accurate way. So again, Mm -hmm. if you can approach with curiosity, if you can approach without judgment, if you can validate their experience, and I know it's hard, right? There is no one specific way to talk to a young person about porn. And even if I were to give you some words, they may not fit with your approach. Like if it was me and I had a 16 year old and there's porn on their phone, I'd say, listen, like I know that you're accessing adult stuff. I get that you're curious. I really just want you to know that in real life, that's oftentimes not what sex looks like. And I know that it's uncomfortable and I know that it feels awkward, but if you have any questions, I'm totally open to trying to answer. And if I don't have the answer, I can try and help you to find the answer. And it is such an amazing teachable moment to go online to some of these reliable educational sites together. So that's where they're going to go in the future when they have questions rather than just a random Google search. Yeah, I love that approach. And I think that some parents are like, oh my gosh, and then they get their kids in trouble. And then, you know, there's like consequences for it. And I understand that's kind of like that initial reaction, like the shock, but I love what you're saying and that it's a teaching moment, right? And you want to be able to have that open and honest conversation with your kids. Like if you want them to come to you, You need to be able to respond to these events. We all didn't have access to the internet when we were that young. Like I 100% would have looked that up, right? Like (laughs) we all would have, we, we don't know what we would have done when we were that young. And we did, we like saw them on the squigglies at night. There was like one friend who had a videotape, but I think parents have to remember that this isn't about you and this isn't about your feelings. This is about supporting your teen Mm -hmm. and you need to take a breath. And take a beat. For sure. And we get a lot of questions around sexting and people will lose it on their teens or take away their phone or punish them or judge them. But we need to slow down and we need to think about what is it I'm hoping for here? Well, I think we all share, regardless of parenting style, you want your teen to be safe. You want them to feel confident, empowered, and you want them to be able to make decisions in the long run when you're not hovering over them. And yelling and screaming and punishing are probably not going to lead to that empowerment and the skills required to make decisions in the bigger picture. Like they're going off to school soon. They're not going to be living with you. You probably hopefully aren't going to be paying their phone bill Mm -hmm. for much longer. So we need to slow down and think, okay, what are the questions I'm going to ask? Another piece of advice I remember hearing from another sex educator in my field, she said, you get one question at a time. You don't get to say, what were you thinking? Where did you find this? What are you, you know, over and over again, bombarding them with questions. No, it's like one question, shut your lips and let them talk. Let it be awkward. They're not going to all of a sudden, most, most young people don't pour their hearts out to their parents when they feel like they've been, you know, caught in an act that is shrouded in shame, regardless of whether that messaging comes from your family or just sociocultural conditioning more overall. And so one question at a time, sit in the silence, sit in the awkwardness and know that you're going to get through this. Yeah, that's very true. You remember webcams, like when it was like, there was no like sexting, like you wouldn't really take a photo on your, like when I was in university, just kind of got my first phone, but there was some girls on webcams at our university and they, you know, were joking around and talking to some guys and pictures were taken. And I remember that was kind of like the very beginning of like that kind of stuff, but it was when you would get a forward. Remember when you get like tons of forwards in your inbox with like all the jokes and the memes and stuff. And I remember just feeling so sick because they had sent these photos 
And they got on forwards. Like I remember my boyfriend at the time's dad got it across the province. Like it went everywhere. And they were called, like it was our university. They were called the name of our university girls. And it just went really viral. And that's what I tell the kids. So I've always been like, I just want to tell you a story. And they didn't come back to school. It literally was like an education ruiner. It was like their whole experience. It ruined it just because like teaching kids to like, what you put on the internet, it's forever. Even if it's a Snapchat, even if it's, you know, I think that kids don't fully understand like the longevity of what they're posting because it's like so in the moment. Mm -hmm. And so that's been always my teaching moment with the kids before, like when they got their phones and like that kind of stuff. I'm like, you just have to remember. And I tell them about these girls and I'm like, you know, it ruined things for them. Like those photos, you don't want them floating around if you were to ever do that. And that's very unfair because for women, for example, it is more likely to have that deleterious, long-lasting effect. Because when you really think about it, I'm not suggesting people put naked pictures of themselves out there. But if somebody were to see me naked, what would be the cost? Like, why have we created a culture in which seeing my naked body, which really is just, we all have one, mm -hmm. right? It's not a wonder of the world, ruins the you know capacity to, to finish their schooling or the reputation. Like, that's a sociocultural conversation that I think 100% also needs to be had. But yes, absolutely. And that's what I suggest with parents when they're talking to teens about sexting is to ask them, like, you know, what would be the benefits and what would be the costs? Mm -hmm. Like, what do you see as the benefits? And let them kind of say it, right? It can feel good to be validated. It can feel intimate to share that with someone we have to acknowledge that it's not all bad. Mm -hmm. Now, can the consequences be dire and long lasting and negative? Absolutely. But I think we have to let them work that out for themselves. And I don't mm -hmm. mean by sending sex and learning their lessons, but by having conversations that are more open and honest and nuanced, mm -hmm. right? Because let's be honest, the prevalence of sexting is very, very high. Most people at some point, you know, in long-term relationships these days are sending some sort of a sexy picture, right? Whether it's fully clothed, but you're still posing, or it's something just a little bit more risque. And adults do it all the time. And we have to remember that there isn't this thing that happens the day you turn 18 where these things become safe, right? At any age, if naked pictures of us were to get out right now, it would have an effect on us psychologically, probably, you know, economically or in business, socially, emotionally, all of those things. And so I just think we have to remember that lots of people have sexted. Let's be honest, lots of parents who are talking to their teens have sexted. So let's not talk about it like in a dichotomizing way where bad people sexed, good people don't. Oh, yeah. And I think leaving that nuance there is so important because teens are smart, right? It's a different conversation with an 11-year-old versus a 17-year-old, mm -hmm. even 13 and 17. Those are worlds apart at that age. And so you know your kid best. You know how to manage the conversation. And if you're not comfortable having the conversation, practice, push through the discomfort, or find somebody in your life who is comfortable having the conversation with them. Maybe it's an older child. Maybe it's, you know, a step sibling. Maybe it's a cousin. Maybe it's an aunt or it's an uncle. Of course, people are always asking me to talk to young people and they'll talk to me, right? They'll tell me anything. They're not going to tell their parents and they know I'm not going to tell their parents and they know I'm going to be pragmatic. Like I'm not here to judge. I'm not going to hear to say, oh, you really screwed this one up because we've all screwed up in life and we've all made it through. Mm -hmm. Totally. I'm going to interrupt this episode really quickly to give you the inside scoop on brands and resources that I'm loving who also help support the show. 
I want to tell you about something I'm doing for 2023. I'm going through my closet and getting rid of anything that does not represent my best self. If the best version of myself, the one that I dream about becoming, wouldn't wear it, or it doesn't make me feel confident and good, it is going in the donate pile or I'm selling it. That includes my loungewear. I am no longer into comfy clothes that make me feel like a slob kebab. I want to look cute. I want to look put together, even when I'm just chilling. So I have gone through my loungewear and purged. You want to know what's left? My cozy earth. I am not kidding when I tell you that cozy earth loungewear is next level. It washes perfectly, it fits well, and the quality is amazing. The breathable four-way stretch bamboo viscose fabric is temperature regulating and the most comfortable ever. If I were you, I would order the bamboo joggers and the ultra soft bamboo pullover crew. It's probably no surprise, I have it in black. I also have the ultra soft wide leg pullover pants and I'm obsessed. Also, if you wanna up your PJ game, the loungewear bamboo PJs are also unreal. All you have to do is head to CozyEarth.com and use the code COZYJAMIE40 for 40% off your order. Yes, 40%, that's the biggest discount that they offer. Head to CozyEarth.com and use the code COZYJAMIE40 for 40% off. One of my goals for the new year is to eat out less. If you know me, you know that I love a good restaurant meal. I would eat out every night if I could. But now with Porta, I can recreate the restaurant at home with chef-made Italian classics sent right to my door. Meals are ready within minutes with high quality ingredients from Italy and plans that fit my schedule. There's no prep, no mess, it's perfect. The chefs at Porta make their food from scratch and then flash freeze it to lock in the flavor. I'm talking pasta, desserts, pizza, risotto, pastries. Porta is literally a dream. You just have to give it a try. Head to eporta.com and choose your meals, pick your schedule, and then use the code JAMIE30 for 30% off. For restaurant quality Italian classics right to your door, go to www.eporta.com and use the code JAMIE30 for 30% off. That's eporta.com and use the code JAMIE30. That brings me to one of the questions on here. I'm going to skip ahead. It's about how, you know, society looks at women, right? And so like, if you were to send the pictures or you do the things, you're slutty. Like, you know, there's like all of these messages that we have received. And I had a message from one of the stepmoms who was like, I want to be dirty in the bedroom. Like I want to be a little more risky, but like, I can't help feeling like, okay, that makes me slutty or that like, there's like the stigma around, I don't remember how she worded it, but something like that. Like, do you have any thoughts on that? Cause I do think there's a lot of messages that women need to overcome to fully enjoy the sexual experience and to like be the sexual being that we are without feeling like, oh, is this slutty or you know what I mean? Yes. I mean, sex is not only shrouded, but also just it's steeped in shame, right? And so that to me sounds like shame that is tied to identity. It could be tied to gender. It could be tied to other layers of identity in your life, right? And it could be tied to age. It could be tied to different roles, different occupations, race, class, all of these things. And so letting go of shame is not this, you know, quick overnight process. But I do think we need to remind ourselves that we're entitled to pleasure, that pleasure is a birthright and that it has so many potential benefits, right? Not only to the relationship, but to your overall physical and mental health. So it is worth 
looking for ways to chip away at that shame. So how do we let go of shame? One of the strategies that I use is I have people identify the source of the shameful messages. Like, where did that come from? Did it come from the church? Did it come from a grandparent? Did it come from, you know, something you saw on TV? And then to just take the opportunity to reevaluate that source. Is that source a good source on this specific topic? And when we go back to where those original messages come from and when we write them down, we can start to see the absurdity of it, right? And there are so many different ways to do this. You can look at the sources of shame. You can get more comfortable with your body and pleasure and touching yourself because I find that a lot of people can't let go of that shame that makes them feel like they're, for example, slutty because they've never touched themselves. They've never like really tuned into their own pleasure. And oftentimes we still see sex as something that we do for a partner, not for ourselves. And the remedy to that is to have sex with ourselves and to like mindfully masturbate and mindfully touch the body to just explore. And I know most people don't have the time for that, but maybe, you know, in the new year, you could pick one day, it's not going to take a whole day, (laughs) where you just set some time aside for yourself to relax and enjoy and maybe before you read a book. But that letting go of shame, I know it's a long process. The other thing we can do to eradicate or erode away at shame is have these conversations, right? Mm -hmm. The more you talk to a friend about this, a sibling, a partner, the more likely we are to normalize the reality that everybody's going through this, to learn from a range of different experiences. Like sometimes what happens with sexual shame is we think that something we're doing or something we're feeling is so awful and we're the only ones experiencing it. So we keep it secret and shame, of course, breeds in secrecy. So the moment you just let it out and say, oh, I'm struggling with this, all your friends are going to put up their hands and be like, oh my gosh, I used to struggle with that or I still struggle with that or here's my experience. And so the more we can have these conversations, the more opportunity to break the silence, the more opportunity to kind of chip away at that shame. Mm -hmm. I love that. Okay. Masturbation. If my partner masturbates a lot, should this offend me? Okay. So I don't want to say whether or not it should offend you. Your reaction to anything is valid. It doesn't always mean it's rational. It certainly doesn't mean you're right because there isn't necessarily a right or a wrong here, but your reaction is your reaction and however you feel, that's okay. It is not your partner's job to make you feel better necessarily. It really is our own job to deal with our own feelings and learn to self-soothe. That doesn't mean that we can't talk to our partner about it. That doesn't mean that we can't solicit their help. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't expect their empathy and, you know, some degree of support. So many people are offended by their partners masturbating. And I just did a podcast on this as well. The reality is people who have active, healthy sex lives still enjoy sex with themselves. Sometimes it's just to release. Sometimes it's because they don't want to bother you. Sometimes it's because they're not sure if you're interested in sex. You're not showing desire for sex. This especially happens in relationships where one partner does the bulk of the sexual initiation. So if you're never initiating sex, should they be offended? Should they feel like, well, my partner doesn't desire them? So it may be that sometimes they just like to do it that way because it's faster. It may be that that's just a part of their self-care routine. And so like anything in our lives, we tend to do them with different people. Sometimes I eat with my family. Sometimes I eat with a friend. Sometimes (laughs) I eat by myself. And that doesn't mean that I don't value doing that. So I I talk about eating because I love sharing a meal. Like there is to me nothing more exciting than sitting down over good food and good wine. And I got to tell you, I love doing it at parties, like big dinner parties. I love doing it just with my husband where we don't feel pressure to talk too much. And I adore 
doing it by myself. I travel for work and I get the pleasure of eating alone. And it's one of my favorite hobbies, like just having a meal by myself. And that doesn't mean that I don't like eating with other people. So I think we can take some of that logic and apply it in the bedroom as well. And if you're feeling uncomfortable with it, or maybe you're feeling like, oh, I wish you'd just come to me, let them know, go ahead and have that conversation. And they may say something like, oh, I thought you were tired, or I didn't want to bug you. And then you can say, okay, I need to step up and let you know that I have a desire for this too. Mm -hmm, For sure. And it's the delivery of that message too. That's really important, right? Right. So if you go to your partner and say like, why are you always doing that? Why are you always jacking off? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) If it feels accusatory, if it feels judgmental, it's not going to be as fruitful as if you say like, oh, I saw you were up to something. I'd love to be a part of that. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a good one. Okay. How do I get past doing something I don't enjoy, but I know that he wishes I do it from time to time? So first of all, you don't have to do it. I'll say first and foremost, you don't have to do everything because your partner likes it. You can probably find another way to do something similar to that. But if you do want to do it because you want to do it for your partner's enjoyment, there's two things I'm going to say. One, can we figure out why your partner likes it? Like what is the underpinning that makes them enjoy that activity? So maybe you can extract pieces of that and give them some of it that is a little bit more enjoyable to you or less off-putting even. So that's number one, if you can have a conversation with them to really understand why they like it, because then you can do some emulation. And I'll give you a quick example. So people will have a fantasy about deep-throating. Let's just say, okay, I want my partner to deep-throat. Well, not as many people feel like, you know, gagging on a on penis. (laughs) Um, But there are ways that you can... So if I find out why he likes to be deep-throated, then I can figure out how I can still be a part of that without actually doing it because I don't want to do it. So maybe he just likes the sensation. Maybe it is literally just the sensation. Okay, that's the easiest solution. One hand with lube on the end of it attached to my mouth. It's going to feel just like a mouth. Super simple. Now, maybe he likes the feeling of you deep throating because it kind of turns him on that, you know, and this is with respect that like that fact that you're gagging or like you're almost choking on it. Maybe it makes him feel like big and powerful. Okay, cool. Then I'm still not going to deep throat, but I can make some noises. (laughs) I can talk about how big it is. I can talk about how it's hitting the back. You know, you don't have to do everything in real life. And that's the key to hot sex over a lifespan, right? How is sex still exciting 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years into a relationship? It's because you're playing with these fantasies. So that's one side of it. The second side is to figure out what parts of it you enjoy. And then if it is a physical activity that feels off-putting, have an orgasm first. Because our inhibitions and our disgust factor actually decline post-orgasm because of the rush of adrenaline, endorphins, and oxytocin. So things that you would never want to do all of a sudden start to feel a little bit more appealing after you've had an orgasm. So that's one option. Mm. That was very interesting. That was good. That was good. So the next one, this is fitting, is advice for people who are afraid to explore their fantasies and probably afraid to talk to their partner about it. Okay. So talking about fantasies is really, as I said, the key to keeping sex hot over the long term. So one of the best ways to talk about things that you like and don't like is to use popular culture. So if you're binging a show, you can say, oh, I love the way he approaches her, or I love the way she touches him, or I can't stand the way he's talking to her, or that type of language turns me on or turns me off. Because when we talk about a third party, a fictional third party, we're creating this bridge that allows our partner to get a better understanding of what we like, what we don't like, what our boundaries are, what we our desires are, without 
taking the risk and having to be as vulnerable because it's not necessarily about us. So that's one way to talk about fantasies. Another way, and this is an activity I do with couples all the time, just as a joke, is we draw our fantasies because most of us aren't great at art. If you're a great artist, maybe this isn't for you, although maybe it's even more for you. And then you kind of share the papers and have a little laugh and talk about what it means. And then most importantly, here's the most important piece around fantasy. If we can get into the why versus the what, it's often a safer, more fruitful conversation. So if I say, oh, I have this fantasy about having a threesome, okay, this is just super common fantasy. If I just say, oh, I want to have a threesome, my partner might say like, whoa, no way, you pervert, stop that right now. What's wrong with you? Whereas if we talk about why I want to have a threesome, if I can get into the emotional underpinnings, what is it I want to feel in this fantasy? That's the important question. What is it you want to feel? How do you feel in your fantasy? Well, I could say, well, actually, I think I just love the attention. I love that feeling of being adored and worshipped and having all eyes and all energy taking care of me because I feel like I spend my whole life taking care of others. Then my partner can stop being worried about the threat. It's not that I want another person on me. It's not that I actually need you know, how many fingers would that be? 20 fingers all over (laughs) me. It's that feeling of being adored and worshipped. And that's when we can start to play with it, just the two of us. It doesn't mean we go and have a threesome. So I think we also have to reassure our partners, you know, I want to share this fantasy, but I don't really want to do it in real life. I feel a little bit silly, but this is what it looks like. And I will say we just had a big podcast on fantasies as well. If people want to check out the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast, we go over what the most common fantasies are and how to talk about them. But the quick version is talk about how you feel in your fantasies. I love that. Do you think that sex drive goes down when people get into their 40s? I had one question saying that their husband's sex drive is down when he says he's too old. And then she feels like she's in her 40s now and she doesn't have any desire for sex. Yeah. So overall, we do see a decline in sex drive with age. That is not across the board. There are huge variations. I know women in their 40s and especially in their 50s post-menopause who will find that their desire for sex actually goes up because they're Mm -hmm. no longer worried about birth control. Oftentimes the kids are out of the house. Stress levels are lower because they're perhaps more financially or socially stable. So it really varies from person to person. But yes, overall, we do see a decline with age. I think a super important distinction here is that there is a difference between the idea of sex drive versus desire for sex. So we use the word sex drive and that makes it sound like it's something that occurs innately. But the reality is for most people that sex isn't just something that we spontaneously want. Oftentimes it's something that we know feels good, that we want to derive the associated benefits from. And so we get ourselves in the mood. So just because you're not in the mood for sex doesn't mean you can't get yourself in the mood for sex. And in long-term relationships, when you're busy with many responsibilities, when you're a parent, and as you age, you may find that you need to get yourself in the mood for sex, you know, with a little bit of effort, physical or like fantasy or talking to a partner or just even lying next to them. So if you wait until the desire for sex spontaneously occurs, you may never have sex. Mm-hmm. And that's okay if that's for you. So that's the other thing. If you're finding that both of your sex drive is going down and it works for the two of you and it's not having any negative effects, that's perfectly fine, right? There's all this data showing that the more often you have sex, the happier you are in your relationships, the happier you are in life. And it maxes out at about once per week. But those 
median numbers are not that important to the individual, right? If you're happy with sex once a week, amazing. If you're happy with sex once a year, amazing. If you're happy with sex once a day, amazing. You just have to figure out what works for you and communicate with your partner and know that it changes over time. Mm -hmm. And be on the same page as your partner about that. I was listening to this on another podcast and they were talking about how like, you know, what is their ideal number and learning about that, right? So maybe your partner wants it like three times a week, thinks that's normal. And you're like, I'm good at like one. Okay. Then you meet in the middle at two. Do you know what I mean? Like, but if you have someone who's like, I think it's normal to have sex like once a month and the other one's like, I want it every day. Then there's like a huge discrepancy, right? But like, that's what's important is being on the same page as your partner about what your needs are. Right. And I think being willing to meet in the middle somewhere, obviously you never want someone to have sex when they don't want to have sex. But if you are the lower desire partner, can you say, oh, I'm not in the mood tonight, but let's see what we can do to put me in the mood. And there's so many layers to this because that only happens if the sex is good. Because sometimes one partner will complain like, oh, they're never in the mood. They never want to have sex. And then when I talk to them, well, they don't really like sex. You're not really tuning into the things that they like. And so these are big conversations. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, speaking of big conversations, the last two questions were very similar. So how to improve your sex life when one of the spouses has cheated? And can you ever get your sex life back after he cheated? Okay. So the second one is easier. Yeah. You can absolutely get your sex life back. Obviously, you know, after infidelity, there has to be work, right? There has to be work, not only as a couple, but individual work. And so whenever I see couples who are dealing with these big issues and they're going to couples counseling, I'm always going to suggest that you go to individual counseling because you can work together, but you have to work on how you're feeling on your own. And if you're the partner who has been cheated on and there's something holding you back from being able to be sexual with them, it probably has less to do with sex and more to do with vulnerability. And so you probably want to kind of work out what is making me feel vulnerable? What am I afraid of? What issues am I struggling with? Is it trust? Is it betrayal? Does it have to do more with the way I feel about myself and I'm putting it all on the cheating? Because oftentimes, you know, cheating is not always in response to a deficit in the relationship, but sometimes it is, right? So have you repaired those other existing deficits? My observation with sex is that people tend to separate sex from the relationship. They'll say to me, oh my gosh, the relationship is basically perfect. It's just the sex. And when we dig in, that is almost, almost never the case. I'm not saying there aren't exceptions. And similarly, when there's an issue in relationships, they'll say, well, it's the sex thing or it's the cheating thing. Well, is it, or is it the way you communicate with one another? Is it a lack of, you know, effort or skills to let go of resentment? Is it that one partner is still shouldering all of the weight or the bulk of the weight of emotional, psychological, and practical unpaid labor? If we can address these issues, then we can get into the bedroom. If you really believe that, you know, everything is repaired, you just can't get back into the sex, I would really encourage you to focus on yourself, to focus on having sex with yourself and having really pleasurable sex with yourself. So you learn more about your body, you use your toys, you understand kind of what your positive and negative triggers are, and then you can go back to having sex with your partner. I also think that if you haven't had sex or you haven't had pleasurable sex since cheating, slow down and start with just feeling physically reconnected. And that's what I do in the mindful sex course. Like the first physical exercise is just a hand caress. And if a partner isn't willing to take the time to do something like that, 
I think we have bigger problems, right? And I'm not saying you have to do that specific exercise or my specific program, but there needs to be effort on both sides and a willingness to try new ways of connecting, explore new pathways to pleasure, as opposed to assuming you can just, you know, put it back in sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Put it back in. Yeah. You know, I think there's just so much more to it. And I think the more that, you know, we're getting open about this, right? More people are having conversations. There's more podcast episodes on it. You know, people like you doing the work that you do, because there is such this, like, there was this like shame in talking about it, but then going back to the porn conversation, then everyone like has this expectation that they're going to have this like porno sex and it's going to look like that and feel like that and be like that when like no one's talked about what they like or what they need and have that open conversation with the relationship, right? Like it was just also taboo for so long. And I think it's really good now. Like people are starting to talk about it, but we're still like on the verge, right? Like of the discomfort. We are. You're absolutely right. Yeah, there's a mainstreaming of these conversations, even around cheating. Like cheating is far more common than people realize. So the data shows that 24% on average, when we look at like the metadata across studies are cheating. That's the number of people, percentage of people who are admitting it. It's higher than that. So you're not alone. And I can promise you relationships absolutely come back after cheating. Oftentimes, relationships can be stronger. I'm not suggesting that you cheat. And I'm not suggesting that the cheating makes it stronger. But The reality is we should be investing in our relationships like we invest in our businesses, like we invest in our kids, like we invest in our careers from day one. And most of us do not really invest in our relationships until something goes awry. And so that's why when there is an event that precipitates actually investing or reinvesting in the relationship, even when it's a negative event, it can lead to a positive outcome. Mm -hmm. So good. Well, thank you so much, Jess, for taking the time. I could talk to you forever. It's my pleasure. Great to chat with you. You know, I always get nervous talking about sex unless I'm talking to you. So you're helping me overcome it. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. And you're great at it. And that's the other thing people have to remember. You don't have to be perfect. Like you saw me kind of stumble over my words when I was thinking about when you find porn on a teen's phone, right? There is no right way. You don't have to be perfect. And I think whether it's with a partner or with a child or with a stepchild, it's okay to be vulnerable and be like, man, this is tough for me. (laughs) Or say like, this makes me uncomfortable or that I'm sweating, but I value this relationship or I value whatever it is. I want to support you or I really love you or I really want our sex life to be great and I know it can be. So let's have this awkward, sticky, uncomfortable conversation. And it's not a one-time thing. Love it. Now, where can everyone find you, Jess? Sexwithdrjess.com and the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. That's it for this one. Thank you so much for tuning in. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, share it with someone who you think it would resonate with. And if you haven't already, if you could take a couple minutes, head to iTunes and give this podcast a rating and a review. It would mean the world to me. But only if you like the episode though. If you don't, that's cool. Just remember what they say. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all. Now, if you are a stepmom craving more, I highly recommend joining my membership, the exclusive stepmom community. Members get access to additional podcast episodes, interviews, and coaching sessions, and live Q&As, and just exclusive next-level content and conversation that I don't share anywhere else. Have an issue or a stressor that you'd like my support with? Just bring it to the Ask Jamie section of the forum. I check in throughout the week, and I'm here to help you out. To get more information or to join, head to www.jamiescrimger.com forward slash membership, and I'll see you in there.